This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, January 6th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. Washington may have a new Congress, but it's stuck in the same shutdown. You can call it the Schumer or the Pelosi or the Trump shutdown. Doesn't make any difference to me. Just words. But words so far have produced no solution, as a quarter of the U.S. government remains shuttered for the third week. President Trump warns it could last months or years, and Democrats dig in. We're not doing a wall. Does anybody have any doubt that we're not doing a wall? We'll talk with two veteran dealmakers who are trying to break the impasse and reopen the government. The Democratic whip, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Nancy Pelosi, I extend to you this gavel. In the middle of the funding standoff, the 116th Congress gavels in. Nancy Pelosi reclaims the title of speaker as Democrats take control of the House and usher in the most diverse Congress in history. A panel of freshman members weighs in on inheriting a shutdown and early calls to impeach the president. This is a national disgrace. And it's off to the races as the battle for the 2020 presidential contest begins to take shape. One high-profile Democrat jumps in. Hello, and other potential candidates near their own decisions. All that, plus analysis on the week's other news, coming up now on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. Top White House officials and senior congressional aides will meet again today to try to find a way out of the shutdown. So far, their talks have yielded nothing. Yesterday, the administration stuck to its demand for $5.7 billion to build a border wall. Democrats insisted the government needs to reopen while negotiations continue. With no deal in sight, trash is piling up at the nation's national parks, and some 800,000 federal workers won't receive paychecks until the government reopens. We begin today with Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin, who is in Springfield, Illinois. Senator Durbin is among a group of senators talking to the White House about how to end this shutdown. Senator, welcome to Face the Nation. Uh, the president said this morning that he's considering declaring a national emergency, depending on what happens in the next few days. If he tries to build this wall without congressional approval, what will Senate Democrats do? Well, I can tell you first, there's no uh, requirement that this government be shut down while we deliber deliberate the future of any barrier, whether it's a fence or a wall. This is the first president in history who shut down his own government. Uh, there, unfortunately, there are going to be people to suffer. 
look at the, those at the airport who are carefully going through the passengers to make sure that they're safe on airplanes. As of next Friday, they'll miss a payday. Uh, that may mean uh, some problems for mortgage payments, uh, problems in balancing the budget and the, of their own families and households. This is totally unnecessary, and that's a point we've made over and over to this president. Let's have this debate on the future of any barrier wall or border security, but not at the expense of critical services for America. Well, the president says he could bypass Congress by declaring this national emergency. So what would you do if he, he went that route? I can just tell you, I, I don't know what he's basing this on, but he's faced so many lawsuits when he ignores the law and ignores tradition and precedent and just goes forward without any concern. He'll face a challenge, I'm sure, if he oversteps what the law requires when it comes to his responsibilities as commander-in-chief. We described in your introduction your attempts in the past to broker agreements. You, you've tried to be a dealmaker. You were in the room with the president on Friday. Did you hear any points of agreement? Well, of course, there was an agreement to continue the conversation. But what we've said is open the government and let's have a fulsome debate and deliberation. Uh, this uh, gun-at-our-head uh, approach with closing down the government is the thing we most oppose. Uh, and we wish, incidentally, that the Republican Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, would step up and be part of this conversation. He's to said that he's going to stand on the sidelines and wait for instructions from the president. Uh, he is part of a branch of government uh, and a leader in the Senate. He should be a participant in this conversation from the start. As of last night, three Republican senators have said they don't like this approach of shutting down the government, and they're talking about joining in a bipartisan effort to end it. So uh, from what you're describing, it doesn't sound like there is any progress. How close are we to ending this shutdown? Well, I can't say that we're close because the president's made it clear he doesn't care. Uh, he's prepared to see a shutdown for months, and he even said years, and reaffirmed that before the cameras. Uh, it was stunning to hear a president of the United States say that about his own government, a government we elected him to lead. Uh, but that is his position. Think about the hundreds of thousands of people who will be entitled to income tax refund checks who won't receive them because the Treasury Department has been shut down, the Internal Revenue Service is shut down. The unfortunate and, and unfair results here are just across the board. According to the White House, though, I, you know, this centers on what they see as some hypocrisy among Democrats, right? They point to in 2006, there were about, you know, 90 Democrats who did sign on to a secure fencing act that talked about barriers and reinforced fencing at borders. Their argument is, if you agreed to it then, why can't you agree to something similar now? What, what is your response to that? Well... I would just say, do you remember the president's words? How could you forget? A concrete wall 2,000 miles long from sea to shining sea, paid for by the Mexicans. How many times did he say that to the American people? That is not what any of us have ever voted for in the past. Well, he what now we says it doesn't have to be concrete. Those fences and barriers. Well, he's changed, he's changed his demand from time to time, and he's changed the amount of money he's asking for dramatically from $2 billion to $5 billion to $11 billion to $25 billion, even to $70 billion. And when we ask for specifics, how are you going to spend this money? What are you going to do with it? He basically says, well, shut down the government till you agree on it. That is not an approach that comes up with a safe border, which Democrats certainly want. Have you seen the more specific financial requests that the White House says they were giving to Democrats? No. As a matter of fact, the meeting yesterday between Vice President Pence and the staff uh, they agreed that today they would produce, finally, produce documentation 
backing up what the president's latest demand might be. But Vice President Pence said at one point a few weeks ago, $2 billion will do it, $2.1. And then within a matter of hours, the president reversed it and said, no, it has to be 5.6. That's what we're up against. There doesn't seem to be a consistent message, and and doesn't seem to be a message consistent with border security. If we're talking about border security, the overwhelming number of undocumented people in the United States overstayed visas. Mm -hmm. They did not cross the border. The solution to that is not a concrete wall. It's a computer program that needs to track these people who have received the visas. And this wall, incidentally, when you have people coming to the border looking for a border official to present themselves and to make their claim for asylum or refugee status, this wall is no deterrent. It sounds like you're saying you would be open to more border funding if it was spent in a different way. Could you get to that $5 billion number? I don't see that. But I will tell you, we've offered $1.3 billion with very specific uh, limits, which would not include a concrete wall. The president could have taken this long ago and we could have moved forward. But he said, no, I'm going to shut down my own government. That's what he's done. There has been speculation, and, and, and our next guest, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, has proposed this idea of a wall for DACA sort of trade here. The president stood in the Rose Garden the other day and said he wants to wait until the Supreme Court rules on DACA before he comes to any kind of proposal here. Um, Do you agree that we need to wait on the courts there? And is there any room for that kind of swap, that kind of deal? Listen, uh, Senator Graham and I could not be more different politically. He's a conservative Republican from South Carolina. I'm a progressive Democrat from Illinois. But we've teamed up time and time again to try to solve this problem. And a year ago, a year ago, we presented to the president on January the 11th, 2018, I do remember the day, a bipartisan proposal to deal with DACA and many other aspects of the reform, and the president rejected it. He said, I'll go with my approach. His approach ended up with 39 votes in the United States Senate. It wasn't even accepted by his own party unanimously. So we're in a position now where when the president makes these claims and promises, a lot of us, I hope I can speak for Senator Graham, are a little bit skeptical. Well, thank you very much, Senator. We will turn now to South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, who joins us from Clemson. Uh, Senator Graham is someone, uh, as we've been describing, who who speaks to the president, um, often uh, shares his advice. Senator, did you speak to the president this weekend about this shutdown? Yeah, it was pretty clear to me that we're never going to have a deal unless we get a wall as part of it. Uh, Dick Durbin's a reasonable guy, but he's not leading this parade. We're having to negotiate with people who want to abolish ICE, not support ICE. We're having to negotiate with people who see the Border Patrol agents gassing children rather than defending our borders as professional law enforcement officers. And we're negotiating with people who will give us $1 for the wall, even though it's immoral, and accuse all of us who support a wall as part of border security is racist. As long as the radical left is in charge, we're never going to get anywhere. The president will compromise, but he will not capitulate. So that's where we're at. But the people in the room are your colleague, Senator Durbin, uh, along with Speaker Pelosi. You don't, well, he was on Friday. He was on Friday with the president. 
they sent staff people to do the negotiation. The vice president's in the room with a bunch of staffers. Today. Dick Durbin is a good guy. He's a reasonable guy. But Nancy Pelosi has made progress. She's gone from not a penny to a dollar. Nancy Pelosi sees the border crisis as manufactured. President Trump sees it as real. Until we see the same movie, you're never going to reach a conclusion. The president is right to dig in to get money for a wall as part of border security. It will not be a concrete wall. It will be steel barriers. And every plan I've supported in the past with Dick Durbin has had money for physical barriers, mm -hmm. including walls and fences, except now when Trump's president. Well, there are about 800,000 federal workers who are in this limbo, yeah. not being sure when yeah. they're going to get paid. So yeah. with that in mind, with them in mind, why can't you reopen the government while you argue about the things you just laid out? Why would you negotiate with somebody who calls you a racist if you want a wall, who gives you a dollar for a wall when the Democratic Party supported $25 billion in the past? We're not going to negotiate with people who see the world this way. We'll negotiate with Dick Durbin, but I'm not going to negotiate with somebody who calls the Border Patrol agents a bunch of Nazis when they're trying to defend the border against a mob. These caravans have changed everything. The reason you need $5 billion now and not $1.6 is the border is deteriorating in terms of security. We've got 11,000 unaccompanied minors coming mm -hmm. from Central America, and it costs us $750 a day to house these minors, and only God knows what they go through to get here. Uh, the Democrats see uh, our law enforcement officers as the problem. We see the illegal immigrants, the coyotes, and the drug dealers as a problem. Well, what about Until those people changes, who work for Homeland Security who are carrying out the policies you're talking about who are not yeah. going to get paid? Yeah. What about the Coast They're, Guard? Yeah, they're not being held paid. hostage. They're being held hostage by people who say you need one dollar to secure the border. They're being held hostage by people. So you don't who want to open the government and then continue talking. I do want to open up the government, but the goal is not to open up the government. The goal is to fix a broken immigration system, to bring reality to this table. Uh, that ICE is not the problem; it's the solution. The goal is to repair a damaged, broken immigration system. Is to implement mm -hmm. policies Democrats have voted for in the past on President Trump's watch. We're not going to give in to this radical left ever until we can find a rational way forward where we'll have wall as part of a border security plan. We're going nowhere. Wall plus DACA plus TPS makes sense. But you'll never convince the president me that we don't need a wall. But is the yeah, president open so. to that compromise you just floated there, yeah, the, the DACA really and TPS for wall? Yeah, but what he's not open to is a lecture by the Speaker of the House, I'll give you a dollar. He's not open to the people on the left accusing his Border Patrol agents of being uh, Gestapo agents gassing children. He's not open to the idea that the wall is immoral. But, so if you bring Dick Durbin's to the table, mm -hmm. we'll fix this. If but let's dig into that because that's significant okay. what you said there. If you think the president yeah, is, is open indeed to open to a, a DACA for wall trade here, because he stood in the Rose Garden the other day and said, no, you got to wait till the court rules and we're some time out he, from that. Okay, here's what he's open to. He's open to getting his wall money we need $5 billion for the wall in light of the uh, increased threats. He has always put on the table, he put 1.8 million illegal immigrants having a pathway to citizenship in his own plan. So how can you say he's not open-minded to it? Here's what I think the deal would look like. Give him the money we need to secure our border, and $5 billion, five, six could be well spent, and I think we can put on the table TPS reform. There's 400,000 people going to lose their legal status soon who've been here for decades. I'd like to deal with that problem. When is that going to be worried. put on the table, that offer? Uh, 
I think we'll have offers on the table when we find somebody that's not crazy to deal with. We're not going to put any offers on the table as long as people in charge of these negotiations accuse all of us who want a wall of being a racist and see our Border Patrol agents as gassing children. Until you can get that crowd put to the sidelines, I don't see anything happening. You've worked with uh, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, on criminal justice reform. Um, yeah. He is cited as someone open to the deal you described uh, of yes, DACA for Wall. Is. But the president really seemed to shoot that down in the Rose Garden the other day. I am here when to tell would you, we I, see that put on the table? Is that that's a bigger immigration overhaul than what we're talking about right now, which is simply the wall? When you see Dick Durbin and others in the room, not a bunch of staffers. When you see this rhetoric that those who want to build a wall are racist, stop. When you see the idea one dollar is enough for the wall, when that stuff ends, the real negotiations begin. Right now, the people running the show on the left are radical liberal Democrats who don't see a border security problem. They see their own government being the problem, mm -hmm. not the illegal immigrant. Until that changes, we'll never get anywhere. There's a deal to be had here, yeah. but it will include a wall. And if there's no wall in this deal, we'll never have a deal. I want to ask you about uh, Syria. I know you watched the region and you had criticized the president's decision to pull out. Uh, the national security advisor, John Bolton, is in the region right now and is saying now right. there's no timeline for a U.S. drawdown and it'll be dependent on Turkey agreeing not to slaughter our Kurdish allies. It sounds like he's describing right. an indefinite timeline of U.S. troops staying in Syria. Well, I had lunch with the president last week, and I came away a bit encouraged. There are three things that we want to accomplish as part of a withdrawal. We want to make sure that when we leave, the Kurds do not get slaughtered. And I don't trust Turkey to take care of the Kurds. It'd be like Putin trying to police Assad. That didn't work well. We need a plan to protect uh, the Kurds from Turkey and others. We need to make sure ISIS doesn't come back once they're defeated, and Iran's not the biggest winner. If you can accomplish those three objectives by reducing our forces, which I think we can, then count me in. But those three things have to right. be... Uh, accomplished for us to successfully leave Syria, and the president's slowing down and he's reevaluating his policies in light of those three objectives. Don't let Iran get the oil fields, don't let the Tur Turks slaughter the Kurds, and don't let ISIS come back. I think I share the goal of the president to withdraw our forces. Let's just do it smartly. Is this an admission that the president made a mistake? I think this is uh, the uh, reality setting in that you got to plan this out. President Obama ended the operations in Iraq against sound military advice. The president's getting sound military advice about the status of the Kurds, uh, what will happen in, with Iran if we leave too soon. And uh, you know, the bottom line here is we want to make sure we get this right, that ISIS doesn't come back. And I applaud the president for reevaluating what he's doing. He hasn't changed his mind, but he's listening to a lot of good advice. And President Obama never would do that. And you saw what happened when a president shuts people out. This president's not shutting people out. He has a goal in mind of reducing our presence. I share that goal. Let's just do it smartly. Senator Graham, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support 
offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Four freshman Democrats joined us earlier this week to talk about their new jobs in Congress. We spoke with Representative Johanna Hayes, a former National Teacher of the Year from my home state of Connecticut, and that state's first African-American woman to serve in Congress. Congressman Max Rose, an Army captain from New York who earned a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart in Afghanistan, he then went on to work in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill represents New Jersey. She flew helicopter missions in the Navy, then went to law school and became a federal prosecutor. And Representative Colin Allred, who's from Texas, he's a former NFL player who later worked for President Obama's Department of Housing and Urban Development. We started the conversation talking about the vote they took to reopen the government. All of you just came to Washington at a time when a quarter of this government is shut down. All of you took a vote to reopen the government, but uh, Leader McConnell in the Senate has said that is just a waste of time and political posturing. Where do we go from here, Congresswoman? Well, I don't think it's a waste of time. Um, We voted on the most bipartisan bill we could vote on, the one that was passed recently by the Senate within the last month. And so I think what we're asking Congress to do is its job and pass a bill that's going to reopen the government. But passing a bill that reopens the government comes up against this hardline position the president has taken, which is he wants border security, specifically a border wall, adequately funded. Do you see, Congressman, room to move beyond that existing level of $1.3 billion? How do you get to the five he wants? Well, uh, let's be very clear. He he doesn't want border security. Uh, We have border security in this bill that we passed, and we are willing to negotiate on border security. There is a difference, though. Uh, between border security and then building a wall that we don't need and that will be a waste of money. Uh, $5 billion price tag is a lot of money. There's a lot of things we can do instead of that. Is it just a matter of semantics here? Border fence, some kind of barrier? I mean, is there movement for Democrats to support what the president in some way is asking for? Let me say, I'm from Texas. We have fencing in place. There is a, a significant amount of fencing, in fact, in place. And there is a big difference between wasting money on something that maybe will be just a a campaign promise versus something that will actually get the job done. Fencing in certain places is absolutely appropriate, and we do have that. Congressman, what is the impact of the shutdown? I mean, there's some calculation here that this could go on for weeks, if not months, because it's not really being felt. Are you seeing that in your district? Absolutely. Look, and we all are. We all have federal workers in our district. This is a national disgrace. There's a lot of talk here about national security and border control, and we need that. But we also have to talk about the fact that a shutdown should never be used in this country as a negotiating tactic. So Speaker Pelosi has called the wall an immorality. She said, no way, no how is the president going to get money for it. That's a pretty hard line position versus where the president is. Do you find any room for compromise in the middle? The room for compromise is talking about how we can deal with the crises that we are currently facing right now. At our ports of entry, fentanyl and other very serious drugs is just streaming right in. You think the ports are a bigger issue than the southern border? 
I think that we have serious issues throughout the country. The point here is that what I'm not willing to do is spend billions of dollars on what amounts to a vanity project, a fifth century solution to a 21st century problem. What, you want to also bring horses back to the United States Capitol? Maybe bring some rowboats to the Navy? We could put Trump's name on it? This is far more serious than just political brinksmanship, okay? Let's get back to work. It's why we all ran, and I know it's what the Republicans are interested in doing, it, doing as well. And I promise you, if they did that, their voters will reward them, okay? This is not political suicide. Congresswoman, if a compromise is reached in the Senate where you see some kind of increased funding for border security, call it a wall, call it some kind of fence, uh, but something put on the table for Democrats. Do you see uh, your, your fellow uh, House members getting on board? Well, I think, I apologize, I lost my voice yesterday, but I think the government shutdown is a sobering reality of where we are right now. We have to get to work. We cannot keep operating in hard lines. We cannot keep saying nobody's willing to move. We have to move. That's why we were elected. That's what we were sent here to do. We so have you to would be to open to Absolutely. voting for increased border security beyond the $1.3 billion that all of you signed off on already? I think we have to look at the bigger problem of immigration, reforming our immigration system, not just a wall. So would all of you, yes or no, vote for something that put an offer on the table for Democrats like protections for dreamers or protections for those coming here under extraordinary circumstances like temporary protected status? Well, I think it's important to see what's in the package. And it's, mm -hmm. I think it's hard for yes. any of us to say. Uh, I think all of us at this table came to Congress to work in a bipartisan fashion to get things done. We're trying as much <clears> as we can right now to be bipartisan. Uh, we need some bend uh, from the other side as well. We'll continue that conversation in our next half hour, so stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. New York Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has made a name for herself taking on Republicans and her own party. Tonight, she sits down with 60 Minutes. Here's part of her interview. You're willing to compromise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just about what we choose to compromise. My personal opinion, and I know that my district and my community feels this way as well, is that we as a party have compromised too much and we've lost too much of who we're supposed to be and who we are. And the Democratic Party has lost. Too I much. think so. I think I think we've compromised things that we shouldn't have compromised, whether it's judgeships with Mitch McConnell, uh, whether it's compromising on climate change. I think we've there are some things that we've compromised a little bit too much on. But am I open to compromise on on certain ways to get things done? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And you can watch more of that interview tonight on 60 Minutes. We continue our conversation now with our panel of new House members. Earlier this week, we asked them about their priorities in Washington. Another topic, of course, you, all of you haven't been on the job very long, but very quickly, we did see one of your colleagues mm. uh, introduce articles of impeachment. The House Oversight Chairman, uh, Elijah Cummings, said that's premature. What do you all think? Is that too soon? I, I think so. I'm a former federal prosecutor, and we certainly never made charging decisions before the FBI finished their investigation. I think we've got to let Mueller finish his investigation, see what evidence he finds, and then we can make some decisions. You're waiting on the Mueller report. I am. It's absolutely premature. This is way too early to be talking about this. We need to let the investigation run its course. Uh, and I, I just think that it's, uh, it's also something that uh, can be used as a partisan lightning rod that we need to try to avoid. What about the tone of this conversation? Uh, one of your colleagues, a uh, congresswoman from Michigan, was speaking to supporters and used a profanity yeah. uh, and said, uh, you know, impeachment should be what we're talking about. What yeah. do you think of, of maybe not the language, but, well, but the premise of look, what's being I, I'm about. from Staten Island. I have no problem with profanity, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but what, I, what I have a problem with, though, is the fact that she is talking about this issue and urging action on this issue before the investigation has been completed. That will just continue this era of hyper-partisanship that we have to move away from. Yeah. So I, I certainly object to it. Yeah. Congressman? Premature. The gravity of that word is too big and too important to just throw it around. I want to also ask you about some of the things you campaigned on. Congressman, as we said, you're from Connecticut. Um, In your home state, that was the site of the Sandy Hook shooting. I know you've talked a bit, given your time in the classroom, and you've thought a lot about this. What is it that you think can actually get done? What are you going to try to do about gun control? Well, I think that Any conversation about arming teachers is not the response to gun control. I think we have to have background checks. We have to make sure that we are getting guns off the street. So would you commend the Trump administration for this ban on bump stocks that recently happened? Yes. But not enough. It's a first step. It's a first step. Yes. Congressman Rose, uh, you served in Afghanistan, as we said uh, in your introduction. Both President Obama and President Trump have wanted to draw down troops Mm -hmm. from that war zone. What do you think of that idea of a drawdown or a full withdrawal? Well, there's been a larger problem in terms of the way in which we have tried to uh, overcome 21st century threats, and that is that we are fighting sequential one-year engagements without any type of long-term strategy. So the key here in Afghanistan, because we saw in Iraq, The invasion of Iraq was absolutely foolish, but then we did a speedy withdrawal, which I believe was motivated by politics, and then we had to go right back in. We cannot afford to do the same thing in Afghanistan, but we also have to come to the realization that the only way in which we will stabilize that country is with some type of political reconciliation with the Taliban, and it's our responsibility as the part of an international coalition Mm -hmm. to provide the freedom and the space for that political reconciliation to be realized. And I intend on playing a part in trying to contribute to that. And that is not a small ask either, to get diplomatic (laughs) talks with the the Taliban underway. The administration is trying to do that. It absolutely isn't, but we have been at war in Afghanistan now for 17 years. To put things into perspective, people are now enlisting in the United States military who were born after 9-11. 
Okay? We cannot just have perpetual war, but we also have to maintain our leadership on the global stage, which means that when we make a commitment, we stand by it, and we don't just try to exercise politics on the global stage. We need to have a long-term strategy, not governed that by tweets. That sounds like what the Trump administration is suggesting. Well, what I just saw was an announcement about a withdrawal like that, which took everyone by surprise. I believe that that's playing politics. And that's a shame. I don't want to see Americans put at risk. I've watched loved ones get hurt. I don't want to see that if it's unnecessary, but I just want us to have a long-term strategy that mm -hmm. realizes the fact that politics is what matters here. And it's the United States military's job to provide that room for diplomacy to take its action. Congressman, you've also served, as we said in the introduction. What do you think? Do you support not just Afghanistan, a drawdown, but a withdrawal in total? You know, what I would add to what Max is saying um, and, and what I think is lost a little bit in the discussion of Trump's strategy is this idea that we don't have a, a good plan with our allies. We are always at our strongest as a country when we are moving forward with our traditional allies in NATO, for example. Uh, that is when we're able to get the space to have diplomatic relations, which w when we bring uh, world approbation to bear. Um, and so when we're in an era where we're treating our traditional adversaries better than our allies, I think <laughs> that is making it more and more difficult for us to operate mm -hmm. from a point of power on the world scene. But you support a drawdown? I think we certainly need to be talking about how we end these wars, but I don't think you can do it and say, you know, as we just announced in Syria, we're just pulling out. Mm -hmm. You have to have that long-term strategy, and that is a piece that's missing. Congressman, um, this week, not only a new week in Congress, but also the beginning, it seems, of the 2020 presidential campaign season. <laughs> um, I know. Get ready. Yeah. Um, if, if you just use your own campaigns, I know you're sort of, wow. Yeah. It's exhausting, but it's beginning. Yeah. Who do you think, as people who just ran competitive and successful races, how do you win as a Democrat in 2020 in a presidential race? <laughs> you know, I, I think that 2020 is going to be about 2020, and it's not going to be about 2018. Uh, there are certainly lessons you can learn, I think, from some of our races. Uh, I, think like there, I, think, I think there's a hunger out there for people who are willing to speak honestly, who aren't uh, you know, just uh, so poll-tested and, and, and uh, holding back on what they're really thinking. I think there's also a hunger out there for people who are trying to solve problems instead of just uh, carrying a partisan banner. I think the country <clears throat> needs to heal. Uh, the divisions are growing, uh, and I think that we need a uniter uh, to be our nominee. Do you have anyone in mind from your home state? <laughs> well, I certainly <laughs> like my former boss, Julian Castro, mm -hmm. uh, who... Uh, as a friend of mine and a mentor of mine, uh, and, and we have a lot of political talent in Texas. So, What about the rest of you? I'm supporting Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> but if I could just have one important thing, because you, it's obvious that election season's starting again, but what we can't do is campaign in the halls of Congress. When it comes to things like infrastructure and reducing health care costs, we can't say, oh, I don't want to give this president a win because it might improve his chances in 2020. Is that is what that you a, think is happening now? I think that there's the potential that it could happen. We've only been governing now for 24 hours. But there's the potential <laughs> that we could say, man, there's all this opportunity for consensus. Think about draining the swamp, right? Everybody's running on anti-corruption now. But in order for us to do something, we have to be bipartisan, which means everyone's going to win. If all we're thinking about is 2020, that's going to be a big, big problem, and the American people are going to suffer. 
I think if we're going to win as Democrats, um, we need to run the kind of races that form broad coalitions. The way we took back the majority of the House is through districts like mine, um, the 11th District of New Jersey, where I ran on a, with a broad coalition of people on issues that everyone in my district, from progressives to conservatives, agree on. Uh, things like infrastructure reform, things like bringing down health care costs, um, things like really, you know, focusing on our environment and how we move forward now, not in 50 years, making sure we have universal background checks for gun purchases. These are things that the majority of Americans agree on, and the Democrats are always at their strongest when they're focused on families and they're focused on the issues that are going to move people forward. And all Absolutely. of that requires working <laughs> with a Republican yes. Senate and a Republican yeah, sure. president. Yes. And all of you are willing to do that? Here's the shocking thing, though. 2016 and 2018 were not that different. It's just different political parties won. If you think about what Donald Trump ran on, okay, if you put some of the racist stuff aside for a moment, which is difficult, I know, but he spoke about infrastructure, he spoke about drug costs, he wanted to protect Medicare and Social Security, draining the swamp. We ran on many of those same things. The American people right now are united that they want sensible solutions to deal with the things that really cause them pain and suffering. And now it's our responsibility to actually do something about it. Thank you very much for this conversation. I wish you all luck as lawmakers. Welcome to Washington. We'll be right back with our reporters panel. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We'd like to welcome our reporters panel now for some political analysis. Dan Balls is the chief correspondent for The Washington Post. Ed O'Keefe is a political correspondent right here at CBS News. Shannon Pettypiece is a White House reporter for Bloomberg News. And Mark Landler covers the White House and foreign policy for The New York Times. So, Ed, I'll start with you. Did you hear any points of agreement or were Democrats and Republicans just talking past each other uh, the two of their best uh, spokespeople were talking past each other this morning, yes, and I think uh, elsewhere as well. Look, the, the staff meetings that are happening this weekend that the vice president is chairing is usually the kind of thing you see on maybe day two or day three of a shutdown. We can forgive the holidays. We can forgive the fact that people weren't in town. Maybe that's the delay. But uh, what are we on, day 16 now? And, and this continues to stretch out. And, and given that they're still at that very preliminary point, where they're still only beginning to define what border security means mm -hmm. to everybody, where they're still defining how $5.6, $5.7 billion would be spent, we've got a ways to go. Uh, Congress doesn't get back till Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. 
that would suggest that you've got to have meetings and maybe some initial votes. I'm thinking a week from today, government's probably still shuttered, unless something urgent suddenly arises that forces them to move faster. You had Senator Durbin saying he doesn't see a way to get to $5 billion. You had Senator Graham saying, no wall, no deal. Is there any point of agreement anywhere in here, Dan? There's not at this point, other than that both sides believe in border security. uh, (laughs) Whatever that means. Frankly, yeah, so whatever that means. And and I think it is remarkable that we have gone now two-plus weeks, uh, and there has been absolutely no indication of where the negotiating could actually take place. Uh, Every time they sit down, they seem to be farther away than they were and more dug in. Um, It it feels as though each side still believes that this can be a win-lose proposition. You know, I win, you lose. Um, That's never the way these kinds of things end. We'll see whether this is a different situation. Well, and the cynics would say it's not just me winning or losing. This is all campaign 2020 that they're gesturing towards, and immigration is one of those issues that divides people, but it, it makes them emotional and fired up as well. Is that actually a conversation about border security, or is it a conversation about politics? Well, there, there is certainly a lot of politics in this, because we know that for, for President Trump, the wall has been central to his political message. Um, and I know there are Democrats who believe that he will never make a deal because he wants the issue more than he wants the wall, if you will. Um, and so that's part of the hump that you have to get over in these negotiations. Um, but with the government shut down, there's going to have to be a solution at some point. I mean, this can't go on indefinitely. The president talked about this could go on for months or even years. It's not going to go on for years. We're, we're confident of that. But the question is how long each side is prepared to hold out. And I think what we'll, what we'll get to at some point, I don't, don't know when, is there will be enough, you know, if you will, pain and suffering and complaints and issues that pop up as a result of the hardships caused by government being shut down that will eventually force a solution. Shannon, I mean, is that the calculus? We didn't really hear answers from either of the senators about what to do about these hundreds of thousands of American workers who are waiting for paychecks. Right. Uh, At this point, both sides think they have a winning hand politically. Uh, No one is facing any real political pressure. And part of that, again, the holidays, people weren't really paying that much attention. Uh, But for the White House, they see this good politically. Democrats, uh, you know, they're not really feeling any political pain at this point. So that changes at the end of this coming week, when Friday, when federal employees start missing their first paycheck, uh, there are services. People will start noticing uh, getting your passport renewed, going to a national park on the weekend. So then you get the political pressure starting to ratchet up. But because the sides are so far apart, I don't think this ends without one side caving under political pressure. And right now, no one's feeling it, so it goes on, and and, and there's no urgency. Mark, uh, one of the other things that um, may not be breaking through but is a big headline today is the National Security Advisor in Israel making an announcement that seems to be yet another change in the Syria policy. The president said he was pulling troops out in 30 days. Then we stretched it out to 120 days. Now what's being described is a total indefinite stay of U.S. troops in Syria. What are people at the Pentagon actually being told to do? Well, it's, it is interesting. It's, it's as though we have come full circle from where we are, were on December 19th when President Trump announced this pullout uh, and put a 30-day deadline on it. Um, I think uh, there's probably a great deal of confusion at the Pentagon, and I think it's not an accident that we have not seen a single four-star general come out and speak publicly about what the strategy is in Syria. Um, there's been a great a lack of, of, of synchronicity between the White House and the Pentagon all along. The question I have now is, 
how in sync is the national security advisor with right. his own president? President Trump, just a few minutes ago on his way to Camp David, repeated what he has said over and over again. The troops are going to come out of Syria soon. That's a very different message than what John Bolton had in Israel a few hours earlier. Uh, some of the caveats that he put in place, namely the one that we would not pull out our troops if there was any threat that the Turks would go after our Kurdish allies, that is by all accounts a standard that cannot be met at all in the short term. I think a lot of people in the Pentagon are skeptical the Turks can ever be relied on not to go after the Kurds. So I think that we're, we're really in a very a, a, a moment of, of deep confusion about where this policy goes. But I have to say it is in keeping with what we've seen from President Trump on troop uh, deployment and withdrawal issues almost from the beginning of his presidency. He will say something dramatic, indicate a desire, determination to pull out, and then as the machinery of the national security mm -hmm. apparatus kind of grinds on, uh, the timetable suddenly slow down. It's a lot more complicated. His words meet reality on the ground, and I think that's the moment we're at, but it must be a very confusing one for our allies and for our adversaries. Yeah, it's not clear if the order has been given to troops to not pull out, because they had been ordered to pull out. Indeed. And we don't know who the Secretary of Defense will be either. And that's a very interesting question because a number of the obvious candidates for the defense uh, secretary job are actually people who went on record fairly strongly against President Trump's troop pullout. Lindsey Graham being an obvious example. Tom Cotton expressed reservations about it as well. So some of those top-tier candidates don't appear to be on the same page. There are some other names that are being bandied about. But I'm beginning to sense that maybe filling the defense secretary job will be a little bit like filling the chief of staff job was, which if you were recall, uh, a lot of people turned it down, and Mick Mulvaney only agreed to do it on an acting basis. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Pat Shanahan, the acting defense secretary, is someone we see in that job for quite a few more months. Uh, and that would mean we wouldn't get to hear congressional hearings and, on the record, an explanation to the American people. More to talk about on the other side of this commercial break. We'll be right back in a moment. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. We're back now with more from our reporters panel. Uh, we saw this week campaign 2020 kick off, even though we just started 2019, Dan. Um, and Elizabeth Warren, a senator, throwing her hat in the ring. How do you see Democrats defining themselves? That, that is such an interesting question, because I think we are going to go through a period in which there is great hunger uh, among Democratic activists to figure out who the best person is to take on President Trump in 2020. And I think there is such a range of opinions on who that will be. Um, we saw in Iowa this weekend tremendous crowds 
the turned out for Elizabeth Warren. I think that is uh, emblematic of the interest that people have and a desire to hear from the candidates. I think that people are approaching this with an open mind. We know this is going to be a, a very wide open race. There are a few people like Elizabeth Warren or Vice President Biden, Bernie Sanders, who have standing and networks and, and a certain amount of name identification. But there are all kinds of other people who are going to be in this with different kinds of messages. And my sense is that people are going to be um, reluctant to jump too quickly f- to one candidate and get behind that candidate. Uh, and they are going to say, as, as they all talk about in Iowa, they, they're going to kick those tires for some months as they watch and wait and listen to what people are doing. So lots of exploring without declaring, Ed? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, Senator Warren was the first, to, second to do that, actually. Julian Castro, the former HUD secretary, was the first before Christmas, and will make it official next weekend. Uh, but where's everybody else, you might ask? And, and they are still mulling it. I think we have at least seven uh, Democratic senators who are thinking about it, some big city and small city mayors. Uh, Governor Inslee of Washington State said this week he's still thinking about it. So you will see in the coming weeks a continued... Uh, discussions about this, people saying, yeah, I'm still thinking about it. And lest you think it's just empty talk, I I heard a story from somebody who met the former vice president at an event and said to him, my mother really wants you to run. This is Biden. This is Biden. And Biden said in response to her, what's her name? I mean, her number. He had an aide get her phone number. The next day, he called this woman's mother. And they talked for about 10 minutes. And he asked, so you think I should run? Yes, absolutely, you should. And if you do, I will volunteer for you. And he asked her all these reasons why. That happens, and they're all doing this. It's got to be tremendous for their ego. But whether or not it actually results in them running and taking the plunge you know, is another matter because they have to factor in, can I stand up against somebody like Elizabeth Warren who has right. a name ID right. in the network? Can I somehow distinguish myself in a field that will feature numerous women, several different minority candidates? I have to find a way to play in the South. At the same time, I have to find a way to play in California and Georgia and all these other places because of early voting. It's going to be a tremendous uh, competition, and one that I think... A lot of people are surprised hasn't been joined by others yet, but I think that's because they realize this this is going to be a tremendous exercise for them. It, it sounds there, Shannon, like you're going to see some campaigning in the halls of Congress. Oh yeah, uh, based on the, the rundown of well, candidates. Yeah, well, I mean, and when you talk about this, meanwhile at the White House, they are very clearly in 2020 mode. I mean, we could say they were in 2020 mode, you know, two years ago today, but the White House is transitioning into 2020 mode. And while you have these Democrats who are exploring and making their first trip to Iowa. Uh, now you have a President Trump who has a real campaign infrastructure behind him. It's not the Trump Tower, you know, papers flying all over the place, no one knowing who's in charge. They have an actual campaign. They have raised millions and millions of dollars. They have a, a big data operation. They are out of the gate and running, and the Democrats are still kind of trying to find where the starting line is or decide if they're going to show up at the race. So, I mean, that's what they're going to be up against. And um, they also feel like, despite how much criticism and how unpopular the president might be, they also feel like they have something really to run on. The whole slogan for 2020 is this, promises made, promises kept. Uh, You might not like the promises that he kept, but they are going to say that he did what he said he was going to do. He was not one of those politicians who came to Washington and, 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 you know, did a flip-flop. He he did what he said, and they feel like that's a strong hand to run on. You know, to to your point about campaigning in Congress, that panel discussion you had with those freshman members, three of those four replaced Republicans and will go home in 2020 and run again in districts that favor Republican candidates. The, to, to watch those mm-hmm. kinds of Democrats now in Congress twist in the wind 
as candidates go out and talk about a progressive tax rate, Medicare for all, agreeing with the president that maybe we should withdraw all our forces from right. Syria, it's going to be really difficult for a lot of these people to somehow make a mark here and somehow deal with the maybe 15, 20 people who are running for, for president in their party. And um, it's going to make things quite uncomfortable for them. Mark, I mean, one of the things that, to, to pick up on what Shannon was saying, promises made, promises kept, that is something the president prides himself on doing. It has been a challenge for some of his aides, though, who say sometimes you need to change with the information flow when circumstances change. You can't just keep to the promise because it was part of the original brand. Afghanistan, uh, when the president had that uh, cabinet meeting in front of the cameras earlier this week. He made some unusual comments, uh, and Wall Street Journal came down pretty hard on him. Yeah, no, the president said, in essence, that the uh, Soviet Union had been right to invade Afghanistan. Um, he <clears throat> offered a series of reasons for that that were not factually based. He said it was an anti-terrorism move. It really wasn't. Um, and, uh, and he also attributed the collapse of the Soviet Union to their misadventures in Afghanistan, which uh, is not right. It's not totally wrong, but there were many other reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union. But to, to get back to the political point you were raising, um, I think the troop withdrawal debate is an interesting one, because it is true that he ran on withdrawing American troops from foreign conflicts. Um, I think it's... So did Obama. So did Obama. Um, and so do, as you say, many Democrats. What I don't think has been tested, maybe at least I'd love to see it mm -hmm. tested more, is just how resonant an issue getting out of foreign wars is for President Trump's base. We know where his base is on the border wall. We know that's why he's sticking to the wall so hard. Yeah. And I think that also explained his decision before Christmas to announce this troop withdrawal. I just would be interested to see a little more uh, maybe research into how much, his, how much his voters really care about pulling troops out. Good question. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, and House Democratic Representatives Johanna Hayes, Max Rose, Mickey Sherrill, and Colin Allred. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.